We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. And away we go. Episode 206 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, December 13th, 2021. And sadly, the winning streak is over. Well, we knew that the winning streak would not last forever, even though we wanted the winning streak to last forever. But could the winning streak not have lasted for a little while longer? Uh, the Washington football team's four-game winning streak over thanks to a 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Or was that venue AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas? I couldn't tell with all of the screaming, rabid Cowboys fans in attendance. I tell you what, maybe that's why the Washington football team jacked up ticket prices for this game. The team was trying to gouge Cowboys fans uh, since they made up a sizable chunk of those who were in attendance on Sunday. Well, sadly, those Cowboys fans were treated to quite the show. Oh, Washington did make things interesting. That Cole Holcomb pick six was outstanding, but ultimately a nightmare of a first half was too much for Washington to overcome. Washington trailing at the half 24 nothing. Uh, a worse first half you could not have realistically scripted for the W to the F to the T. And boy, do we have a lot to sort through in terms of injuries and COVID-19 related absences. How many more injuries and absences can this Washington football team take? I mean, enough is enough. I know that every team deals with this stuff, but does it not feel like our team has dealt with an abnormal amount of this stuff this season? Hello and welcome. This is a Washington football team postgame show installment 
of the Al Galdi podcast. You know, this is my birthday, December 13th. Uh, that is my birthday. Uh, I was hoping for a birthday gift from my football team, with that gift being a glorious win over the Cowboys that I could celebrate and dissect with you on the podcast. Instead, uh, my football team gave me it trailing 24 nothing at the half. Happy birthday to me. Uh, anyway, uh, next segment, the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the game. I will then give you plenty of thoughts regarding the game beyond those in the front five. Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Terry McLaurin, Antonio Gibson, Washington's defense. You will hear the best of Rod Rivera's post-game press conference. Uh, a lot to get to. Very disappointing game, but Washington still is in playoff position with a big game coming up at the Philadelphia Eagles this Sunday afternoon at one. Also on the show, plenty of non-Washington football team items from what was a loaded Washington, D.C. sports weekend. Big win for Maryland basketball on Sunday. A 70-68 win over number 20 Florida in Brooklyn, New York. This off all kinds of stuff being out there about Terrapins fans being why Mark Turgeon stepped down as Terps head coach. Oh, how dare you, Terps fans, be critical of the Turge. Uh, I have a lot to say about this narrative being spewed by national college basketball personalities in recent days. I will properly commemorate Navy's big 17-13 win over Army at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. America's game going once again to the midshipmen. I will talk about Virginia hiring Tony Elliott as Cavaliers football head coach. I will discuss a mixed weekend for the Capitals, a 4-2 loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins at Capital One Arena on Saturday night, but then a 3-2 shootout win at the Buffalo Sabres on Saturday night as the Caps now are at 40 points on the season. I will get into yet another bad loss for the Wizards, a 123-98 loss to the Utah Jazz at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. And I will salute Georgetown. Nice job by the Hoyas. A win, a comeback win over Syracuse at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon, 79-75 the final. So the area ended up going 2-2 two and two in what was maybe the greatest rivalry weekend ever in D.C. sports. Navy beat Army and Georgetown beat Syracuse, but the Washington football team lost to the Cowboys and the Capitals lost to the Penguins. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already do that. That is the perfect holiday gift to yourself because subscribing costs you nothing. So you have to spend nothing to get yourself a gift. I mean, who doesn't like that? Uh, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast. And also, uh, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. Those things help out a lot, and I appreciate you for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Yeno. Happy birthday, Galdi. Uh, maybe your son, fresh off the reserve injured list, will throw you a birthday party, much like you did for him. Hopefully, you get something better than a toy lawnmower. Many happy returns. Goldie. Uh, yes, you yeah, know, thank you very much for that. Uh, you know my four-year-old son well. He loves himself some toy lawnmowers. He loves himself anything having to do with landscaping. Uh, I have not had a party in my honor, at least not yet. Uh, I do not believe there is a birthday party in the works. So the only thing my son has given me so far is punching me while I was working on the show after Washington's loss to Dallas. Speaking of the loss to Dallas, lots of feedback on the Washington football team 
regarding the loss to the Cowboys. Email from Stanley Evans. I don't want to overreact. Uh, No, nobody would ever do that on this podcast. I don't want to overreact. Turnovers were the deciding factor in this game. Taylor Heineke finally had the turnover game for which he seemed to be due. Antonio Gibson still has a terrible fumbling problem. All in all, this team, with all of the injuries and mistakes, fought back down 24-0 and was within one score and a DeAndre Carter drop of tying the game. The defense played great. The offense was why we lost this game. Washington has to stop coming out flat. Dallas came out with confidence. We came out scared. I think that is what was most disappointing. I'm sure Washington can't wait to face this team again in two weeks, hopefully with a different mindset. Thank you for the email, Stanley. Yeah, that's the thing. Washington gets the Cowboys again in just a few games here, right? Washington at the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football, the night after Christmas, as the round robin, as Ron Rivera has called it, continues. Although the round robin did not get off to a good start for Washington with this loss to the Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Email from Mike P. Uh, Goldie, I have a few things I want to lay out. Number one, the fact I saw nothing but blue jerseys at a game where the home team was selling tickets for an average of $300 is a complete embarrassment for the organization and the fan base. Amari Cooper catches a pass. All you hear is coo. The Washington football team's lack of connection to the fans is comical. Number two, Taylor Heineke's arm strength is becoming a real problem. It limits play calling for Scott Turner because Scott can't trust his quarterback on deep throws. And when he does throw deep, it's almost always underthrown. Instead of telling Terry McLaurin to continue running deep, Heineke should have just thrown it when McLaurin was open. Instead, it was laid, underthrown, and led to Terry potentially having a concussion. Uh, Heineke's decision-making, which was at one point a pro of his performance, is now a con and worries me. He slides when he should gain the extra yard. He extends when he should throw the ball away. He overthinks when he should take the yards he has. Parentheses, John Bates was wide open underneath on a play on which Heineke scrambled to the right and threw an incomplete pass. Number three, Antonio Gibson has a fumbling problem. Not that we didn't know this before, but now leading the league as a running back in fumbles. I don't know about his future on this team. I know he has a lot of talent. He can catch the ball as big and fast but he has literally cost us games, messed up much-needed motivation, and just isn't able to hold on to the football. Some players just can't get over that. That's not something we need. Yes, he can get it fixed. I hope he does. I really like his talent, but I would be looking at the position differently if he continues to fumble. On to the next one, a must-win. Washington still is in it as much as it seems like Washington is so far behind. Email from Luke Archer. I was sitting behind the Cowboys sideline and you could only see Cowboys fans all around you. Whenever the Cowboys were on offense, you would hear, let's go offense. And if they were on defense, you would hear, let's go defense. After halftime, when all of the Cowboys players came out, there was cheering. And when Washington came out, there was no one cheering. After the Cole Holcomb pick six was the only time the crowd was cheering for Washington. I would say 80% of the people there were Cowboys fans. And I'm not exaggerating. There were a lot of people at FedEx Field 2 All of the bottom sections were filled, and the top sections were almost filled. Keep up the great work. Hashtag HTTR. Wow, 80%. I mean, I knew the percentage was high. Just watching the game, you could tell the percentage was high, but 80%. uh, Is that true? I mean, I don't think Luke just makes that up, but uh, you tell me if you were at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me 
the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Whatever the percentage was, it was high. The frequency with which opposing teams' fans have overtaken FedEx Field over the years is a complete embarrassment. All right. I mean, there are no two ways about it. A complete embarrassment. And yes, opposing teams' fans have taken over other stadiums slash arenas in this area over the years. That is true. But uh, no sports venue in this area has consistently been taken over by opposing teams' fans like FedEx Field has. Heck, how many other sports venues in the country have consistently been taken over by opposing teams' fans like FedEx Field has? Somebody answer that question. Well, if you have questions or concerns regarding your skin, contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. I know that Dr. Verghese is not happy about what happened at FedEx Field on Sunday, but Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist at Mohs Surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan, big listener of this podcast, and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland can help you regarding whatever it is you need with your skin health. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, let's get right to it. No time to waste. The front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team falling to six and seven with a 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number one, in what was the biggest Washington-Dallas game in years, and in what was one of the bigger games at FedEx Field in years, the Washington football team had a horrendous first half. There's a lot to get to with this game, but if you take a step back, this game really was a major disappointment, and that disappointment was rooted in the first half. This was the most hyped Washington-Dallas game in a while. Understand, this was the first Washington-Dallas December game in which neither team had a losing record since week 17 of the 2012 season. We, of course, had the Mike McCarthy, quote, guarantee, end quote, 
of last Thursday, and I put guarantee in quotation marks because he didn't really guarantee a win, but he did say, quote, we're going to win this game. I'm confident in that, end quote. And that, of course, ignited a back and forth between the two organizations, and that added to the hype. You had the Washington football team jacking up ticket prices for the game, as we have discussed on the podcast. And then what ended up happening? The score at the half was Cowboys 24, Washington nothing. That Washington made things interesting in the second half was nice, but misses the point. Washington got buried in the first half of the team's biggest game against the team's arch rival in years and got buried in the first half of one of the bigger games at FedEx Field in years. This game was an opportunity to not just reignite the Washington-Dallas rivalry, but to reignite the Washington football team fan base. And instead, the score at the half was Cowboys 24, Washington nothing. And yes, so much of FedEx Field was filled with Cowboys fans anyway. Uh, but this should not go unmentioned, nor should this go under-discussed, that the Washington football team fell on its face in the first half of this game. That's a big deal. Now look, this is the NFL. Things happen. You can look really bad one week. You can look really good the next week. You can look really bad in one half. You can look really good in another half. And again, Washington did make things interesting in the second half. I mean, I don't think that Washington necessarily was not prepared for this game. Uh, We do have to be fair. Washington was dealing with an absurd amount of COVID-19 induced absences on defense for this game, but the defense wasn't really the problem. The offense was the problem, and the offense has dealt with a bunch of injuries this season. That is true, but the bottom line is Washington got wrecked in the first half on Sunday afternoon. If you paid hundreds of dollars of your hard-earned money for tickets to this game, I hope you had a great time. I really do. You deserve to have had a great time, and maybe you did have a great time, but that first half was a debacle for Washington. That first half was a mess for Washington. That was a shameful first half for Washington offensively. Ron Rivera, during his post-game press conference, on whether he was disappointed for the fans, given his team's first half performance. Yeah, it is disappointing. I feel like I let them down. You know, I wanted them out here to cheer for us, and, you know, we should have given them a better first half. We gave them a very good second half, something to cheer about in the second half. If we put two halves together, we'll, 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 we'll deliver, you know, but that's football, and that's, you know, that's what happens. Yes, and that's what did happen on Sunday. And this, by the way, was Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on the atmosphere at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. It was kind of cool. It really was, you know. Even though there were uh, a few more uh, Dallas fans that I would have liked, um, it was good to hear our folks. It really was, especially down the stretch in the fourth quarter. They came alive, and it really kind of helped us, you know. And, and then, unfortunately, we had the, the last turnover that just kind of deflated everything. But up until that point, that, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm hoping we can continue to build that. We can, we can do something special in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, and then give them something to cheer about later on. But uh, first off, we're going to get to Philadelphia. Yeah, big game at the Eagles this Sunday afternoon at 1. Takeaway number two, Taylor Heineke had a terrible game and a painful game. The offensive problems were not all on Taylor Heineke, and I will get to the rest of the culprits shortly, but 
The offensive struggles do start with Taylor Heineke. Taylor Heineke went just 11 of 25 for just 122 yards. That works out to 4.88 yards per pass attempt. That is abysmal. Uh, He had a touchdown pass, but he also had an interception. He also threw multiple near interceptions. He took four sacks, including a sack strip that resulted in a lost fumble that was returned for a touchdown. He had three carries for eight yards, and he dealt with an elbow injury in the first half and then left the game in the fourth quarter with a knee injury. Here was Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday on Heineke's health. Taylor's dealing with uh, with uh, knee, so we'll see how that is. Um, doesn't look that bad, but we'll wait till he gets examined. Yeah, more great audio quality from, from FedEx Field. Uh, Taylor Heineke dealt with an elbow injury in the game, and perhaps that affected his throwing because he was off. But Taylor Heineke in this game took a beating, including on the play that resulted in that lost fumble. And that was a killer of a lost fumble. Washington's third offensive drive, the seventh snap of the drive on a fourth and two for Washington at the Cowboys 46 in the final minute of the first quarter. Taylor Heineke, a lost fumble on a sack strip that resulted in a fumble return for a touchdown. Heineke took a shotgun snap and then was met with near immediate pressure from edge defender Demarcus Lawrence on Cornelius Lucas, and from linebacker slash edge defender Micah Parsons on Brandon Sheriff. Heineke got plowed into the turf by Parsons for a sack strip. Edge defender Dorrance Armstrong recovered the football and engineered a 37-yard return for a touchdown. The ensuing extra point gave the Cowboys an 18-0 lead. Also on this drive was this third snap, Third and six for Washington at its 31. Taylor Heineke out of the shotgun took a shot from edge defender Terrell Basham. Uh, did get off the pass. Made a great throw to Adam Humphreys, who ended up catching the ball out of bounds for an incompletion. But Humphreys took a shot from safety Malik Hooker for a 15-yard unnecessary roughness penalty. But again, Heineke took a beating in this game. Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt, fourth snap of the drive, and the third snap of the second quarter, Taylor Heineke thrown to the turf by Micah Parsons, who ran right through Antonio Gibson for a third and eight sack for a nine-yard loss. Yes, this was the Micah Parsons show, especially in the first half. We know he's outstanding, okay? He is the rare rookie who could end up winning NFL Defensive Player of the Year. Micah Parsons was dominant over the first two quarters on Sunday afternoon. Washington's fifth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter three and out. First snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke smashed by edge defender Demarcus Lawrence for a quarterback hit on a first and 10 under center play action in completion. Washington's 12th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Tyler Larson steamrolled by interior defensive lineman Neville Gallimore on Gallimore's first and 10 sack at Taylor Heineke for a 10-yard loss. Both Larson and Heineke hurt on the play. Larson carted off the field with an Achilles injury. Heineke left the game with a knee injury. Kyle Allen came into the game at quarterback for the second time in the game. She had all of these brutal shots that Heineke took. Give Heineke credit for his toughness. You know, for all of the talk about Taylor Heineke's injury history during his time in the NFL and all of the concerns regarding Taylor Heineke's durability, his body has held up this season. Now, we'll see what his status is for this game at the Eagles this Sunday afternoon at one. But if, in fact, Heineke is good to go for that game, 
That is impressive. Uh, and, you know, even if he's injured for the game, the fact that Taylor Heineke's body has absorbed all of the hits that he has taken this season, I do think says a lot. That is impressive, his toughness. But what was not impressive was Heineke's decision-making in this game. Taylor Heineke threw an interception and had multiple passes that very easily could have been intercepted. Uh, Taylor Heineke's interception, Washington's second offensive drive, third snap of the drive, first quarter, third and 10 at the Cowboys' 37. Taylor Heineke threw an interception to edge defender Randy Gregory. Heineke took a shotgun snap, and with the blitz coming through to his right, but the ball was tipped twice. The second tipper of the pass was Gregory, who ran through a cut block by Charles Leno Jr., made a leaping tip of the pass, and then caught the football. The ensuing Cowboys offensive drive started at the Washington 41 and resulted in Dak Prescott's first quarter, third and five, 70-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Amari Cooper. So the pick from Heineke was bad, but that also was a great play by Randy Gregory. I do think that you can live with that interception. What was especially bothersome to me, the near picks from Taylor Heineke, just some awful decisions by Heineke. Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt. Third snap of the drive and the second snap of the second quarter. Taylor Heineke, a second and eight shotgun play action and completion on a broken play that nearly resulted in an interception by corner Anthony Brown. Heineke on the play did take a hit from linebacker Keanu Neal. Okay, that was a bad play, but that's not nearly as egregious to me as what's coming up here. Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt. The fifth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a near pick on a second and 20 deep shotgun incompletion on a pass that was thrown into the vicinity of three Cowboys defenders. Seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a near pick on a third and 15 deep shotgun incompletion on a pass that was thrown into the vicinity of five Cowboys defenders. I don't know what Taylor Heineke was thinking on those two throws on that drive, throwing into a horde of Cowboys defensive players each time. Uh, Taylor Heineke was just plain inaccurate on other pass attempts. Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt, third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke inaccurate on a second and eight under center play action and completion intended for Curtis Samuel. Washington's fifth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter three and out, third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke way off on a third and six shotgun and completion intended for Adam Humphreys. Taylor Heineke's only good drive was Washington's ninth offensive drive, which resulted in Taylor Heineke's touchdown pass. Third quarter, first and 10, 43-yard shotgun play action touchdown bomb to Cam Sims, who made a spectacular catch over the corner, Trayvon Diggs on a 50-50 ball. Play was initially ruled an incompletion. Ron Rivera successfully challenged the initial ruling. Heineke made the throw off spinning away from pressure and running to his left, so that was a good play. And then came the two-point conversion. Taylor Heineke, a two-yard shotgun scramble run for a two-point conversion as Heineke, yes, successfully dove forward at the front left pylon to cut Washington's deficit to 24-8. He did the pylon thing again. Uh, also on this drive, that resulted in the touchdown bomb to Cam Sims. Third snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 19-yard under center play action completion to John Bates. Fifth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and four, nine-yard shotgun completion to Jared Patterson. The other good plays for Taylor Heineke in the game 
were few and far between. Uh, Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt for a snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke in the midst of a collapsing pocket, a first and 10, 14-yard shotgun play action completion to Adam Humphreys, who beat Cowboys corner Anthony Brown. Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt for a snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, six-yard shotgun scramble. Washington's eighth offensive drive, opening drive of the second half, resulted in a third quarter punt, third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a third and 10, 12-yard shotgun completion to Adam Humphreys. But otherwise, a lot of bad and not that much good from Taylor Heineke in this game. Again, he got physically ravaged, okay? He got mangled in this game in terms of all the hits that he had to take. But when he did have time, the results were not good enough. The decisions were not good enough. Ron Rivera during his post-game press conference on Taylor Heineke's performance. Well, I thought he had his moments. I, a couple times, you know, I, I thought he, he, he was a little hesitant. I thought he held the ball a little bit more than he should have a couple times. Um, but I thought he, he, he read some good reads. He, he tried to put the ball where he needed to put it a couple times, and he did. And then I think he got a little, you know, kind of pressed a little bit. And, and I'd like to see him, you know, get back to, hey, taking what's out there and, and making those throws that he's capable of. Yeah, this to me was Heineke's worst game as a Washington quarterback. His previous worst game as a Washington quarterback to me was the loss to the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field in Week 5. This performance on Sunday was worse. Uh, now, Ron, late in his postgame press conference, actually got asked if Heineke still is Washington's starting quarterback. Uh, take a listen to the exchange. The question, which is not easy to hear, is from Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Yeah, if he's healthy, he's our starter. Yeah, hopefully you could make that out. Uh, Ron Rivera there saying of Taylor Heineke, if he's healthy, he's our starter. So Ron sticking with Heineke as Washington's starting quarterback, as Ron to me should be doing. You don't bench Taylor Heineke because he had one bad game off having been good to great over the previous four games. Takeaway number three, both Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen were failed by those around them. You start with the offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, and I like Scott Turner. I do not think that Scott is nearly as bad as some other people do. Uh, I like that Scott Turner uses a lot of motion and misdirection. I like that Scott Turner calls a lot of first down passes. I think that Scott Turner has proven that he can scheme guys open. But Scott's offense in this loss to the Cowboys at FedEx Field allowed for Taylor Heineke to take a pounding. And while some of that was on Heineke himself, you as an offensive coordinator have got to do a better job of scheming out of that pressure. And Scott, to me, did not do that. You know, get Taylor Heineke on the move. Call plays that establish moving pockets. Call quick game. Go no huddle. Do things to slow down or mitigate the pressure. Washington did not do enough of these things in this game. Also, the offensive line. Uh, Washington's offensive line overall has been really good this season, and the offensive line has dealt with a lot in the way of injury. But the offensive line was not good in this game. Uh, Washington's pass protection was bad. Washington's running game was bad. You know, I mentioned Taylor Heineke's first quarter loss fumble on the sack strip. Note what happened 
on the sack strip. Taylor Heineke took a shotgun snap and then was met with near immediate pressure from edge defender to Marcus Lawrence on Cornelius Lucas and from the freak of nature, uh, linebacker slash edge defender Micah Parsons on Brandon Sheriff. Heineke got plowed into the turf by Parsons for the sack strip, but both Lucas and Sheriff failing on that play. Uh, Washington's offensive line for the game allowed five sacks and nine quarterback hits and committed two accepted penalties. It's not good enough for an offensive line. Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt. The fourth snap of the drive, Charles Leno Jr. committed a third and eight, five-yard false start penalty. Washington's 11th offensive drive resulted in an early fourth quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Eric Flowers committed a late third quarter, first and 10, 10-yard holding penalty and blocking interior defensive lineman Tristan Hill. And then on the third snap of the drive, in the final snap of the third quarter, edge defender Demarcus Lawrence blew by Cornelius Lucas for a second and 15 sack of Taylor Heineke for a 10-yard loss. And then there are Washington's pass catchers. Uh, Way too little from Washington pass catchers in this game. Uh, Antonio Gibson, yes, he's a running back, but he had a lost fumble on a reception. Uh, More on old Gibby coming up in just a bit. Uh, DeAndre Carter, how about his drop late in the game? DeAndre Carter had two receptions for 12 yards and a brutal drop on five targets. Washington's 14th offensive drive resulted in Kyle Allen's fourth quarter loss fumble on a third and three sack strip by edge defender Randy Gregory. The second snap of the drive and the snap right before the loss fumble, DeAndre Carter had a drop on a perfectly thrown deep ball by Kyle Allen on a second and three shotgun incompletion. Oh, what could have been had DeAndre Carter made that catch. Now, maybe Washington ends up giving up a sack strip anyway, or maybe Washington ends up scoring a touchdown and tying the game. You know, I guess we'll never know. But that was a painful drop by DeAndre Carter. We also had a rough game for Terry McLaurin. No receptions. Yeah, no receptions. Terry McLaurin got shut out on Sunday. No receptions on four targets, and he wound up in concussion protocol off failing to make a catch. Uh, Washington's eighth offensive drive was the opening drive of the second half, resulted in a third quarter punt. Sixth snap of the drive, Terry McLaurin dropped a deep 50-50 ball on a Taylor Heineke third and five shotgun completion on a broken play. Terry went up high, caught the football, but then dropped the football upon crashing to the turf, and Terry ended up going in a concussion protocol, did not return to the game. Hopefully, He's doing all right. Uh, Obviously, that would be huge if Terry McLaurin suffered a concussion and is out for any length of time. Uh, But Terry McLaurin got shut down in this game by Cowboys corner Trayvon Diggs. Uh, Washington got nothing from Curtis Samuel. No receptions on two targets. He has been basically a non-factor since he returned from his groin injury. Washington got nothing from Diami Brown. No receptions on one target. How about what happened with Diami on that one target, by the way? Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt. Fifth snap of the drive. Diami Brown pulled a Ryan Grant. Diami Brown fell down on a Taylor Heineke third and 13 deep shotgun incompletion intended for Diami. This was another near pick for Heineke, but I'm not putting this one on Heineke. Diami Brown fell down. Uh, corner Anthony Brown 
dropped the interception. It felt like Anthony Brown could have had about five interceptions in this game, uh, wound up with zero. Uh, Ricky Seals-Jones had two drops in the game. So Ricky Seals-Jones returned from a three-game absence caused by a hip injury that he dealt with in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10. Ricky Seals-Jones had one reception for eight yards and a drop on four targets, and he had another drop on a two-point conversion attempt. Uh, The drop on an offensive play, Washington's eighth offensive drive, opening drive of the second half, resulted in a third-quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Ricky Seals-Jones, a drop on a Taylor Heineke first and 10 shotgun incompletion. So here you are, first drive of a new half, Washington trying to get something going offensively, and Ricky Seals-Jones has a drop on the first offensive play of the second half. And then Ricky Seals-Jones had a drop on Washington's two-point conversion attempt that followed Jonathan Williams, fourth quarter, fourth and goal, one-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. Kyle Allen uh, threw, I thought, a nice shotgun pass, and Ricky Seals-Jones just did not make the catch. Uh, John Bates had one reception for 19 yards on two targets, but he also committed a penalty in this game. Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in a second-quarter punt. Fourth snap of the drive, John Bates, a second-and-ten, 10-yard pass interference penalty. A really bad game for Washington pass catchers beyond Cam Sims and Adam Humphreys. You almost feel like Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen should take legal action against some of their teammates. Well, that's probably not going to happen, but a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged is Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans, Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers and has just tried two cases in D.C. Uh, I've known the Naces for a long time, 25 plus years. These are good people, smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. This is the Front Five, as I take care of you with my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team falling to 6-7 and seven with a 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number four, Washington's defense put forth an admirable effort given the circumstances. The circumstances primarily had to do with Washington entering this game with a major COVID-19 situation on defense and an absurd situation at edge defender. 
So you start with Washington's most prominent edge defender, Chase Young. Uh, He, right, is on the reserve injured list. He's been on that since November 16th, uh, this due to a torn right ACL that he suffered in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10. Uh, Another prominent edge defender for Washington, Montez Sweat. Uh, Washington this past Wednesday put Montez on the reserve COVID-19 list. Now, it had been anticipated that Montez in this game against the Cowboys at FedEx Field might return from a four-game absence caused by a fractured jaw that was suffered in the loss at the Denver Broncos in Week 8. But Washington on Wednesday put Montez on the reserve COVID-19 list. Then came the parade of the last few days. Washington on Friday placed linebacker and special teams ace Kalik Hudson on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Saturday placed edge defender James Smith-Williams in corner Daryl Roberts on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Sunday morning, hours before the game, placed edge defender Casey Tuhill on the reserve COVID-19 list. Understand, Washington's top four edge defenders, when everyone is healthy, are Chase Young, Montez Sweat, James Smith-Williams, and Casey Tuhill. All four guys were unavailable for this game against the Cowboys on Sunday. Uh, Washington on Saturday activated edge defender William Bradley King and safety Jeremy Reeves from the practice squad as COVID-19 replacement. So this is what you were looking at with this Washington defense going into this game. Here was Ron Rivera during his post-game press conference on Washington losing the likes of James Smith-Williams and Casey Tuhill over the weekend. Well, the biggest thing that impacted was we had to play younger guys. That's an excuse. Those guys are professionals. The other guys, they got their opportunities. They had their moments. They're young guys that made some mistakes, but I tell you, gave them some experience and an opportunity to play football. So Washington's defense was put in a very difficult spot with all of these COVID-19 induced absences. And yet, despite these absences, Washington's defense did well. I mean, to me, Washington's defense played well enough to win this game. Washington's defense was responsible for only allowing 20 points. Washington's defense held the Cowboys to just 7 of 18 on third downs, just 1 of 6 in the red zone, and just 4.1 yards per play. Like, that right there is overall more than good enough to win an NFL game. Washington's defense did a great job on Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott. Washington allowed Dak to complete just 22 of his 39 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of just 56.41. I loved some of what we saw from Kendall Fuller in this game. Two big pass defenses by Kendall Fuller in this game. The Cowboys' 13th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter three and out as Washington was making its charge. Third snap of the drive, Kendall Fuller tight coverage on receiver Michael Gallup for a pass defense on a Dak Prescott third and three shotgun incompletion. The Cowboys' ninth offensive drive started at the Washington 25 off Antonio Gibson's third quarter loss fumble, but resulted in Greg Zerline's third quarter 29-yard field goal. Third snap of the drive on a second and seven for the Cowboys at the Washington 12. Kendall Fuller, a great break on the football and a pass defense on a Dak Prescott shotgun play action incompletion intended for tight end Dalton Schultz. Uh, Washington's defense allowed Dak to throw for just 211 yards on his 39 pass attempts. That works out 
to a yards per pass attempt of just 5.41. Washington held Dak to just one touchdown pass versus two interceptions, including a big pick six. Uh, Washington's first interception, Cowboys' second offensive drive, four snap of the drive on a second and 12 for the Cowboys at their 19. Landon Collins, a leaping catch for a first quarter interception of a Dak Prescott shotgun pass that was thrown right to Landon. Now, the ensuing Washington offensive drive started at the Cowboys 37, but resulted in Taylor Heineke's interception, his first quarter interception to edge defender Randy Gregory, but still nice play by Landon Collins. And then Washington's second interception, one of the biggest defensive plays of the year by the Washington football team so far. Cowboys 12th offensive drive, second snap of the drive on a second and six for the Cowboys at their 26, while leading 27-14 in the fourth quarter. Cole Holcomb, a 31-yard pick six on a Dak Prescott under center play action boot pass. Brian Johnson's extra point attempt was blocked, so Washington only cut its deficit to 27-20, but that felt like a miracle, did it not? I mean, that had me thinking of the Monday Night Miracle in 2005, had me thinking of the Sean Taylor-Troy Vincent Miracle of 2006. That pick six changed everything in terms of the feel, in terms of the complexion, It felt like, you know, the game had received an injection of adrenaline. Like, all of a sudden, whoa, this is a football game again. So a huge defensive play by Cole Holcomb for Washington's defense. Washington sacked Dak Prescott four times in this game. Now, you know, I wouldn't say that Washington's pass rush was dominant in this game, but you did get four sacks in the game. Uh, Yet something like what happened on the Cowboys' sixth offensive drive resulted in Greg Zerline's 37-yard field goal with 15 seconds left in the second quarter. Tenth snap of the drive on a first and 10 for the Cowboys at the Washington 11. Jonathan Allen beat left tackle Tyron Smith on a tackle and stun for a sack at Dak Prescott for an eight-yard loss. So the Cowboys' eighth offensive drive resulted in a third-quarter punt. Fourth snap of the drive on a third and three for the Cowboys at their 42. Duran Payne tackled Dak Prescott while he was scrambling for a sack for a one-yard loss. You even had something like this. This wasn't a sack, but on the Cowboys' fourth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter three and out. Third snap of the drive, Shaka Tony drew a third and six, 10-yard holding penalty on right tackle Lyle Collins, negating a Dak Prescott 46-yard completion to receiver Michael Gallup. To me, there should be better accounting of which players draw penalties. That is a skill. If you as a football player draw a penalty, Shaka Tony right there drew a huge third and six, 10-yard holding penalty on Lyle Collins, wiping away a Dak Prescott 46-yard connection with Michael Gallup. Also, Washington did a good job stopping the run. Uh, Washington held Cowboys running backs Ezekiel Elliott, Corey Clement, and Jaquan Hardy and receiver C.D. Lamb to a combined 28 carries for 107 yards. That works out to 3.82 yards per carry. It's worth noting that Cowboys running back Tony Pollard was inactive due to a foot injury, but whatever. Washington was missing like everyone, it felt like, with the COVID-19 situation. So I'm not here to offer any apologies on behalf of the Washington football team for doing well defensively with Tony Pollard being inactive due to a foot injury. Uh, The bad for Washington's defense, well, Washington was guilty of two dropped interceptions. It feels like this has become kind of a thing, Washington dropping interceptions. Uh, Cowboys' first offensive drive was the opening drive of the game 
resulted in Greg Zerline's first quarter 35-yard field goal, sixth down for the drive. Kendall Fuller had a dropped interception on a Dak Prescott first and 10 shotgun play action and completion. And then on the Cowboys' fifth offensive drive resulted in Greg Zerline's second quarter 38-yard field goal, 11th snap of the drive. Jamin Davis had a dropped interception on a Dak Prescott third and five shotgun and completion on a failed attempt at his screen. Also, Washington was guilty of multiple costly defensive penalties in the game. Cowboys' third offensive drive resulted in Dak Prescott's first quarter third and five 70-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Amari Cooper, who was wide open in the end zone. Also on the play, a Matt Ioannidis one-yard roughing the passer penalty. That moved up the line of scrimmage for the extra point attempt to the Washington one. And so the Cowboys went for two, and they converted via a one-yard run into the end zone by running back Ezekiel Elliott. Also on this drive, by the way, six snap of the drive, the snap right before the touchdown on a third and 10 at the Washington 12. Jonathan Allen committed a third and 10, five-yard offside penalty, negating a third down stop by Washington. Uh, There have not been many negative moments for Jonathan Allen this season. That was one right there. That was a bad penalty by Jonathan Allen. Uh, the Cowboys' fifth offensive drive resulted in Greg Zerline's second quarter 38-yard field goal, sixth snap of the drive. William Jackson third committed a third and six 29-yard pass interference penalty in covering receiver Michael Gallup. Now, if you watch the game, certainly if you have seen replays of this penalty, that did not seem like a legitimate pass interference penalty on William Jackson third, but he did get flagged and he has been flagged a bunch this season. So, I mean, to me, that was not a penalty, but it got called, and things have gotten called way too often on William Jackson III this season. And then takeaway number five, yeah, Antonio Gibson's fumbling problem is a big problem. Uh, The fumbling problem had gone away for a few weeks. The fumbling problem was back on Sunday. So Antonio Gibson in this game, 10 carries for just 36 yards, two receptions for five yards, and a lost fumble on two targets. The lost fumble is everything, okay? Uh, This was huge. Antonio Gibson with another fumble. Washington's 10th offensive drive, the second snap of the drive on a second and 11 for Washington at its 19 with, yes, Washington trailing 24-8 in the third quarter, but also with Washington having established some momentum Antonio Gibson, a lost fumble on a Taylor Heineke six-yard shotgun completion. The fumble, Gibson's sixth fumble in 13 games this season. Ensuing Cowboys offensive drive started at the Washington 25. Did only result in a field goal as opposed to a touchdown. Resulted in Greg Zerline's third quarter 29-yard field goal for a 27-8 Cowboys lead again. Washington's defense did a really nice job in this game. But that fumble by Gibson was brutal. It feels like his fumbles have been especially costly this season. Here was Rod Rivera during his post-game press conference on whether it's time to change anything regarding Antonio Gibson, given all of these fumbles this season. No, you keep talking to him, you keep coaching him, you keep teaching him. He's a young man. He's a second-year player. He's shown that he can be a, a guy that can grind it out have a good stretch, played four good weeks of football. We're not going to change anything other than making sure we under- he understands how important it is to protect the football. So Ron sticking with Gibson, and look, I don't blame Ron. I mean, I don't know if he has much choice right now with J.D. McKissick having missed the last two games 
with a concussion. But no, you don't abandon Antonio Gibson. You know, you don't just plant him on the bench for the rest of the season. But he's got to get this fixed, you know, because this is the kind of thing that can ruin you. And while for the rest of this season, I think Antonio Gibson, assuming health, is Washington's number one running back, who knows for next season? You know, if this fumbling problem continues, who knows what the plan ends up being at running back for next season. Uh, Antonio Gibson in the game, 10 carries, 36 yards. Like I said, he had three runs, though, that totaled 24 yards. So his other seven runs totaled just 12 yards. Uh, The three good runs, Washington's six offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt. Second snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a second and four, five-yard shotgun read option run. And then on Washington's ninth offensive drive, which resulted in Taylor Heineke's third quarter, 43-yard touchdown bomb, to Cam Sims. Second snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a second and 10, 13-yard shotgun handoff run. Fourth snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a first and 10, six-yard under center handoff run. But beyond those three runs, there was not a lot happening with Washington's running game in this game. So there you go. The front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team falling to six and seven with a 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. To review, uh, takeaway number one, in what was the biggest Washington-Dallas game in years, and in what was one of the bigger games at FedEx Field in years, the Washington football team had a horrendous first half. Takeaway number two, Taylor Heineke had a terrible game and a painful game. Takeaway number three, both Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen were failed by those around them. Takeaway number four, Washington's defense put forth an admirable effort given the circumstances. And takeaway number five, Antonio Gibson's fumbling problem is a big problem. Up next, much more on the Washington football team's loss to the Cowboys, including a closer look at Kyle Allen's performance. Some thoughts on two positives in terms of receivers in Cam Sims and Adam Humphreys. And is the Washington-Dallas rivalry truly back. Some juicy stuff occurred over the last few days. I'll get to all of that after this. Well, four games are left in the Washington football team's regular season as Washington contends for a playoff spot. We have the big game at the Philadelphia Eagles this Sunday afternoon at 1, followed by a big game at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday Night Football the night after Christmas, followed by Washington's final home game of the regular season, home to the Eagles, Sunday afternoon, January 2nd at 1. Do not exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find tickets to Washington football team games. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for NFL tickets. You see, TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. And so if you're looking to watch the Washington football team live in person down the stretch of the regular season, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. No more of those ridiculous service fees. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K. 
P-I-C-K.com slash Goldie. That's TickPick.com slash Goldie. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, more now on the Washington football team off it falling to 6-7 and seven with a 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon. So next up for Washington is a game at the Philadelphia Eagles this Sunday afternoon at 1 as three of Washington's final four regular season games are road games in addition to, of course, being NFC East games as part of the round robin as Ron Rivera has called it. Yeah, Washington has just one game at FedEx Field left this regular season. That'll be the home game against the Eagles in Week 17. Although, given what happens at FedEx Field in terms of opposing teams' fans invading FedEx Field, and given what has happened in the past specifically with Eagles games at FedEx Field, I don't know, is that a good thing that Washington has a home game against the Eagles in Week 17? I'm almost like, can we play both games in Philadelphia? Uh, Jeez, FedEx Field, what a mess in terms of the lack of a home field advantage for Washington. You have to worry about opposing teams' fans invading your stadium for every division game at FedEx Field. Think about that. Dallas Cowboys fans, Philadelphia Eagles fans, New York Giants fans, all of them over the years have invaded FedEx Field. All of them over the years have taken over FedEx Field. It's just pathetic. Uh, So the Eagles, by the way, had their bye week in Week 14, as Washington this Sunday will be facing an extra rested opponent for a third consecutive game. So there's that going on as well. Each of Washington's last two opponents, the Las Vegas Raiders and the Dallas Cowboys, had played the previous Thursday. Now this Sunday, your opponent is a team that's coming off a bye while you're in the midst of a COVID-19 situation, to say nothing of the many uh, injuries that Washington is dealing with. But anyway, look, nobody wants to play the violin for you, okay? And I know I'm whining and complaining here a little bit, but you know the truth is the truth about what the Washington football team is dealing with right now. But Washington has got to be better. Uh, winning a second consecutive NFC East title does now seem like a long shot, with Washington at 6-7 and seven being three games behind the division-leading Cowboys, who now are at 9-4, and four, each team having just four regular season games left. But Washington still is very much in the NFC wildcard race. Understand, Washington 
through NFL Week 14, does have the NFC's final wild card spot, has the number seven seed in the NFC, but Washington is part of a five-way tie in the conference at six and seven. Uh, Washington, the Minnesota Vikings, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Atlanta Falcons, and the New Orleans Saints, each team is at six and seven. Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday on Washington still very much being in the NFC playoff picture despite this loss to the Cowboys. Absolutely. Well, because we control our own destiny. We have an opportunity to do something. We got four games left, all four in the division. You know, some some interesting things can happen. You know, somebody else can lose a game or two as well. And who knows? And I told our players that, you know, that we control it. We take them one at a time. We got Philly coming up. We know that. You know, I told the guys we'll get we'll get through this tomorrow and then we'll start focusing on on, on getting ready for Philadelphia. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of those things too that like I said, the 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 Washington football team versus Dallas should be a big game like it was today. We just gotta play better. Yes, you do. A lot to monitor with Washington this week. We have the many COVID-19 situations on defense. We have Terry McLaurin uh, now being in concussion protocol. We have J.D. McKissick on Sunday having been inactive for a second consecutive game due to a concussion. We have Tyler Larson on Sunday having suffered an Achilles injury. And oh yeah, we have Taylor Heineke on Sunday having dealt with elbow and knee injuries and having left the game twice. Taylor Heineke might not be healthy enough to play at the Philadelphia Eagles this Sunday afternoon at 1. Now, Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference, it seemed to suggest that Heineke's injury situation isn't too serious, but we'll see. You know, hoping for the best, but we just don't know. Uh, Heineke was replaced each time that he left the game on Sunday by Kyle Allen. Uh, This was Kyle Allen's first action of the 2021 regular season. Uh, Allen in the game, four of nine for 53 yards. He had two carries for 11 yards, and he took one sack, but it was a costly sack. It was a sack strip that resulted in a game-sealing loss fumble. Rod Rivera during his post-game press conference on what he made of Kyle Allen's performance. Um, I like what Kyle did until the very end. Obviously, you know, you, you'd like for him to, to protect the ball a little bit better, but I, I, you know, he's trying to make a play. I get that part of it, um, but sometimes you just take what's given to you as well. And uh, you know, he made a mistake, and, and he'll learn. And uh, you know, again, we'll uh, we'll keep working. Yeah. So Kyle Allen's first snap of the game and his first snap of the 2021 regular season resulted in an impressive run. Uh, Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted. In a second quarter punt, the first snap of the drive, the final snap of the first quarter, Kyle Allen, who was in the game for Taylor Heineke for one snap on this drive, had a first and 10, 11-yard shotgun read option run. It was nice to see something like that. But what also stands out for you with Kyle Allen is that game-sealing loss fumble. Uh, One snap after a brutal drop by DeAndre Carter. Can't forget that. But Washington's 14th offensive drive, the third snap of the drive on a third and three for Washington at its 37. Kyle Allen, a lost fumble on a sack strip by edge defender Randy Gregory. The play was reviewed regarding whether it was an incompletion or a fumble, but there just wasn't enough evidence to overturn the initial call of a fumble. And watching the slow motion replay, it did look more like a fumble than an incompletion. Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on whether the Kyle Allen lost fumble should have been an incompletion. Well, you know, they looked at it and, 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 you know, from their perspective, it was one of those that, 
there just wasn't enough to overturn, so they kept it where the original call was. Yeah, and then like I said, the DeAndre Carter drop. The second snap of the drive, the snap right before the Kyle Allen lost fumble. DeAndre Carter, a drop on a perfectly thrown deep ball by Kyle Allen on a second and three shotgun incompletion. If DeAndre Carter makes that catch, who the heck knows what ends up happening in this game. You know, Kyle Allen did end up delivering a touchdown drive for Washington in this game. Uh, It was a 13-play, 73-yard drive, resulted in Jonathan Williams' fourth quarter, fourth and goal, one-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. Now, this was a garbage-time drive for Washington, or so it seemed. Uh, The Cole Holcomb pick six came shortly after the Jonathan Williams touchdown run. So I'm not going to go too in-depth on this touchdown drive, but, you know, you had that drive, then you had the Cole Holcomb pick six. DeAndre Carter makes that catch of the deep throw by Kyle Allen. The conversation right now could be a lot different, but bad moment for DeAndre Carter. Some good moments, though, for two other Washington receivers in this loss to the Cowboys. Cam Sims, three receptions for 69 yards and a touchdown on four targets, and his touchdown catch was a thing of beauty. Washington's ninth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's third quarter, first and 10, 43-yard shotgun play action touchdown bomb to Cam Sims, who made a spectacular catch over corner Trayvon Diggs on a 50-50 ball. The play was initially ruled an incompletion, but Ron Rivera successfully challenged the initial ruling. But what a play by Cam Sims in a game in which so few Washington pass catchers made plays. Cam Sims made really one of the more impressive plays that any Washington pass catcher has made this season. Uh, Adam Humphreys, another steady Eddie game for him. You know, this guy's not spectacular, but he catches the football when it's thrown to him. And you appreciate that given some of the drops that we've seen. Adam Humphreys, four receptions for 34 yards on seven targets. Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt, first snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke uh, in the midst of a collapsing pocket, a first and 10, 14 yard shotgun play action completion to Adam Humphreys, who beat Cowboys corner Anthony Brown. Washington's eighth offensive drive was the opening drive of the second half, did result in a third quarter punt, but the third snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a third and 10, 12 yard shotgun completion to Adam Humphreys. Also in this game, Brian Johnson in his second game as Washington's kicker. Well, he did not attempt any field goals, but he missed his lone extra point attempt. The extra point attempt that followed Cole Holcomb's fourth quarter 31-yard pick six was blocked, so Washington only cut its deficit to 27-20. Brian Johnson has had problems on extra point attempts. So Washington on November 30th signed Johnson off the Chicago Bears practice squad, and right placed Joey Sly on the reserve injured list due to a hamstring injury that Sly suffered in the win over the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football in Week 12. Uh, Brian Johnson was signed by the Chicago Bears as an undrafted free agent this past May. He was signed by Washington during his second stint on the Bears practice squad because Johnson, in between practice squad stints for the Bears, kicked for the New Orleans Saints. The Saints signed Johnson off the Bears practice squad in October. Johnson over four games with the Saints, eight of eight on field goals, but he went a mere five of eight on extra points. And now he's had an extra point attempt blocked during his time 
as Washington football team kicker. Speaking of the Washington football team at kicker, did you know that Washington on Saturday signed another kicker? Yeah, there's been a lot to take in with Washington over these last few days. Now, the kicker was signed to the practice squad, not to the active roster, but Washington on Saturday signed kicker Liram Hairulahu to the practice squad. Liram Hairulahu is from Yugoslavia. Uh, He has kicked extensively in the Canadian Football League. Uh, Liram Hairulahu has kicked in one regular season game in his NFL career. Uh, That game happened to be for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Liram Hairulahu was the Cowboys kicker in their 43-3 win over the Atlanta Falcons in Week 10 of this season. He did not attempt any field goals in that game, but he went 5-5 on extra points in that game. And presumably, Liram Hairulahu is here to serve as Brian Johnson insurance should something happen to Brian Johnson at some point. Uh, One more thing regarding this Washington loss to the Cowboys. So this game did very much feel like a true reigniting of the Washington-Dallas rivalry. Uh, This was a chippy game. You know, we had shoving in the game. We at one point had a mini fight in the game involving William Bradley King of the Washington football team. Uh, This was the first Washington-Dallas December game in which neither team had a losing record since week 17 of the 2012 season. Uh, Since we last did an installment of this podcast, we've had more on the Mike McCarthy quote-unquote guarantee. Uh, So, of course, Mike McCarthy in a press conference last Thursday said, quote, we're going to win this game. I'm confident in that, end quote. Rod Rivera later on Thursday taped his television show, The Rod Rivera Show, with Julie Donaldson of the Washington football team. She asked him about McCarthy's comments. Ron fired back. Uh, as I said, dropped a punk card on Mike McCarthy. We then got this on Friday. Uh, Mike McCarthy in a press conference on Friday when asked about Ron Rivera's retort called it, quote, irrelevant, end quote. Jerry Jones on Friday chimed in. This was actually pretty funny. Jerry Jones in an appearance on the Cowboys flagship radio station, 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, took quite the shot at Washington saying, quote, we have always sold more Cowboys memorabilia and had our most positive fan support coming from Washington. Outside of the Texas area, Washington is where we have the most support, end quote. And of course, what Jerry said is totally believable, Uh, See all of the Cowboys fans who were at FedEx Field on Sunday. We also have this NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Sunday morning reported that Ron Rivera on Friday morning delivered, quote, a fiery speech, end quote, to his players about what Mike McCarthy had said in saying, quote, we're going to win this game. I'm confident in that, end quote. Added Rappaport, quote, according to sources in the room on Friday morning, Rivera told his players that McCarthy's comments weren't for the press. They were for his own Dallas team. Rivera added that McCarthy must be trying to get into the heads of the Cowboys players and make sure they had the right mindset for Sunday's game between the division rivals, end quote. There's also this, Benchgate. Did you follow this on Sunday morning? So the Cowboys for this game on Sunday flew in their own sideline benches. ESPN Cowboys insider Todd Archer on Sunday morning tweeted, quote, here's the deal on the Cowboys benches today. Cowboys got word from Seattle that the hot seat benches provided for them at FedEx Field 
kept going out during the game. Cowboys partnered with company in Cleveland that shipped them to FedEx Field, so wouldn't be an issue today. End quote. So the Seahawks told the Cowboys, hey, those dopey visiting team benches on the sideline at FedEx Field don't work in terms of being heated, so you better bring your own benches. And so that's what the Cowboys did for this game on Sunday. And then there was also this. Uh, Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com on Sunday morning tweeted that the Cowboys denied Washington permission to use the Cowboys logo on merchandise for this game. So some of you listening probably already know this, but Washington for games at FedEx Field will sell t-shirts commemorating the matchup. Well, you did not have proper t-shirts for this game commemorating the matchup for this game because the Cowboys denied Washington permission to use the Cowboys logo on merchandise for the game. So, you know, all of this to me added up for a very fun build for this game. Now, ultimately, did any of this impact the play on the field? Maybe not, slash probably not, but that's not the point. I think stuff like this is good for the NFL, is good for sports. You know, sports are entertainment at the end of the day. This helped to heighten the entertainment factor for this game on Sunday. This was a big game. This was a big spot. It's unfortunate that Washington ended up losing. It's unfortunate that there were so many Cowboys fans at FedEx Field. But the good news is Washington has another very big game coming up this Sunday afternoon at 1 at the Philadelphia Eagles. You know, this was not some one-and-done situation for Washington this game against the Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday. This was the first of a series of big games for Washington. And I still look at things like this. Nine and eight should get the Washington football team into the NFL playoffs. Washington still has a five and three record against NFC teams this season. That is a key tiebreaker in terms of playoff standings. So if you can go three and one the rest of the season, that'll put you at nine and eight overall. That'll put you at eight and four against NFC teams. That is a very good conference record. I think that'll be good enough to get you into the NFL playoffs. So can Washington go three and one the rest of the regular season? To me, that's not easy, but that is doable. All right, let's get to some non-Washington football team items from your Washington, D.C. sports weekend. Whereas the Washington football team lost on Sunday, the Maryland basketball team won on Sunday. A big win for the Terrapins. Uh, Maryland improved a 6-4 and four overall, a 70-68 win over number 20 Florida in Brooklyn, New York. This is the Terps' first win under interim head coach Danny Manning. And how about this with this game? And this, to me, says so much about so many things. Uh, This win for Maryland over number 20 Florida in Brooklyn on Sunday, the Terps' first win over a ranked non-conference opponent since November 2014. Yeah, it had been more than seven years since the Terps had defeated a ranked non-conference opponent. Uh, That last time, November 25th, 2014, a 72-63 Maryland win over then number 13 Iowa State in Kansas City. Uh, That says so much 
about the lack of big wins for Maryland under Mark Turgeon during his time as Terps head coach. That says so much about the lack of a strong scheduling by Mark Turgeon. Uh, Like I said, that says a lot about many things. And we're going to get to the Turge coming up in just a few minutes. But I do want to talk about this big win over number 20, Florida. So the game was close throughout. Uh, Each team was good on threes, but not so good on twos. The Terps allowed Florida to go 11-27 on threes, but held the Gators to 11-31 on twos. Uh, The Terps won 8-13 on threes. Uh, did go just 16 to 36 on twos. But if you're a Maryland fan like me, you very much appreciate the Terps going eight of 13 on threes. The Terps have been atrocious on threes this season. Uh, Terps did commit a bunch of turnovers. Terps won despite committing 15 turnovers. But the Terps got some really good games from key players. Eric Ayala was good. Three of five on threes, three of six on twos. He finished with 19 points, five rebounds, and one assist versus three turnovers in 38 minutes as a starter. The Rhode Island transfer, Maryland's point guard, Fats Russell, 3-3 three three on threes, 4-10 on twos. He finished with 19 points, three rebounds, and two assists versus five turnovers in 37 minutes as a starter. Russell had a big go-ahead and one driving layup and made the free throw with 58 seconds left in the second half for a 68-66 Maryland lead. Dante Scott had a big shot. He connected on a tie-breaking leaner from near the right block with 16.8 seconds left in the second half for a 70-68 Maryland lead. Scott went one of three on threes, four nine on twos, finished with 12 points, four rebounds, and two assists versus three turnovers in 34 minutes as a starter. Uh, it was another odd game for the Georgetown transfer. The 6'11 big man, Kudus Wahabi, played for just 24 minutes as a starter, dealt with foul trouble, finished with four fouls. He scored just one point on 0 of 1 shooting, did have eight rebounds. But Maryland did a good job in this game. This is a nice win. This is a resume building win. And this clearly shows that success can be attained with Danny Manning as interim head coach. I mean, who the heck knows how this is going to go with Danny Manning as interim head coach, but at least you get something like this, you know? And like I said, you didn't get wins like this often under Mark Turgeon uh, during his time as Maryland head coach. At least you got one now with Danny Manning as interim head coach. Uh, Maryland now does not have a game until Tuesday night, December 28th, when the Terps will host Loyola of Maryland at 8.30. Meantime, Mark Turgeon, So something that became quite the thing over the weekend was this narrative that has emerged that meanie pants Maryland fans are the ones to blame for Mark Turgeon no longer being Terps head coach. That meanie pants Maryland fans uh, drove Mark Turgeon out as Terps head coach. So Mark Turgeon still has not done any kind of a press conference or interview in the aftermath of the shocking announcement from Maryland now two Friday afternoons ago, December 3rd, that Mark Turgeon, quote, in a mutual decision, end quote, was stepping down as head coach for the Maryland men's basketball program. The only thing that we've heard from Mark Turgeon is what was attributed to him in that statement that was put out by the school on December 3rd. But we, in recent days, have had a series of national college basketball personalities paint a picture of nasty Terps fans having made things too difficult to bear for Mark Turgeon. Uh, College basketball insider Seth Davis of The Athletic in a column that was posted last Monday, December 6th, wrote, quote, with each March pratfall, the fans carping got louder. Social media amplifies outside noise, but over the last few years, there has also been plenty inside Xfinity Center, Maryland's home arena. It was bad when the Terps lost there to George Mason, 71-66, 
on November 17th, and it was worse when they fell to Virginia Tech last Wednesday by four. I have not spoken to Turgeon, but my understanding, based on conversations with other sources, is that his decision to quit was cemented while walking off the court that night as invective rained down from the stands. End quote. Gonzaga head coach Mark Few, he this past Friday said, quote, that fan base made it so miserable that it wasn't worth it anymore. The toll it was taking on him and his family, and then I think you could see that effect, it was even taking a toll on his team, end quote. Uh, Mark Few is pals with Mark Turgeon, and Mark Few with quite the indictment of Maryland fans this past Friday. Then we had Dickie V getting in on the act. ESPN college basketball analyst Dick Vitale on Saturday afternoon tweeted, quote, I have been around the game as a coach, all caps, and at ESPN Hoops Analyst for over six decades, and I can tell you flat out, Mark Turgeon, all caps, is a very good coach, all caps, exclamation mark. Mark, all caps, deserve better treatment from the fan base at Terrapin Hoops, so sad, all caps, how they responded to him, end quote. Oh, whoa, is Marky Mark. Uh, This narrative is ridiculous, okay? And anyone who's a Maryland fan, and I'm talking about anyone who is a smart, intelligent, objective Maryland fan, knows that this narrative is ridiculous, okay? Now, if you're some over-the-top, nasty Maryland fan, that's something different. You're going to think that this narrative is ridiculous as well. But to me, you, you need to sort of check yourself, all right? I'm not talking about Maryland fans who are outrageous. I'm not talking about Maryland fans who are wackos. I'm talking about sober, legitimate Maryland basketball fans, of which there are many. Now, look, I am sure that Mark Turgeon had to deal with a lot in the way of nasty and over-the-top criticism, okay? I am sure that that happened. I am sure that he heard things and read things that he did not like and maybe hurt his feelings, okay? But you know what? All coaches have to deal with that kind of stuff. And you deal with that kind of stuff. And it doesn't make that kind of stuff right. It doesn't make that kind of stuff appropriate. But that is a part of the profession. And when you get into the profession, you need to understand that part of your profession is having to be subjected to this stuff. Again, I'm not saying it's right, okay? Uh, I wish the world was a beautiful place in which it was raining candy canes and lollipops. And, you know, we didn't have to have stuff like this, but we do have stuff like this. And so to me, unless you are in physical danger or your family is in physical danger, you deal with the criticism. And you know what the best antidote for nasty and over-the-top criticism is winning. The greatest Maryland basketball head coach ever, Gary Williams, got booed off the court after a home loss to Florida State at Coalfield House in College Park on Valentine's Day night, 2001. I remember that. I will never forget that. I was there, okay? I was calling the game for the mighty 10-watt power, WMUC, the Maryland student radio station, 88.1 FM. Maryland lost to Florida State Valentine's Day night, 2001. It was a very disheartening loss. Florida State back then was not what Florida State has become in recent years. Gary got booed off the court. He did not take the criticism particularly well. He has admitted to this. Heck, he talked about this on this podcast. In his appearance on the podcast last week, if you did not catch my conversation 
with Gary Williams talking about Mark Turgeon's departure as Maryland head coach. Definitely check that out. That was on episode 203. But anyway, uh, Gary got booed off the court Valentine's Day night 2001. And how did Gary respond? Well, he ended up leading the Terps to the Final Four that season, and then again the following season, in which the Terps won the national title. That's how you shut up nasty and over-the-top criticism. You win. You shove success down the throats of your critics. You don't run and hide, okay? Now look, we still don't know with certainty Mark Turgeon's side of the story. I don't want to just sit here and bash Mark Turgeon and call him soft and call him a wuss because, again, I'd like to know his side of the story. And I am sensitive to things like, you know, mental health issues and uh, stuff like that. And if Mark is dealing or people in his life are dealing with that kind of a thing, then okay. Like, I don't want to just sit here and crush Mark Turgeon. I think Mark Turgeon is a good man. I don't think he's a bad basketball coach. I do think there was a glaring lack of high achievement and big time success during his 10 plus seasons as Maryland head coach. And I also think that this narrative that's making the rounds of mini pants Maryland fans drove Mark Turgeon out as Maryland basketball head coach isn't doing Mark Turgeon any favors. And I don't know if this narrative is coming from Mark himself or is coming from surrogates of Mark or is just coming from people who think that they know what happened when in fact they don't know what happened. But whatever the case is, this narrative is not doing Mark any favors. This narrative is making Mark look weak it's making Mark look overly sensitive. And if Mark Turgeon wants to be the head coach of a big-time college basketball program again, uh, this is the kind of narrative that will work against Mark Turgeon, okay? Because as bad as you may think it is as Maryland basketball head coach, it's bad elsewhere and it's worse in many other places. The people who come to the Washington, D.C. market and think that it's so tough and so critical and so rough on you as a head coach those people, man, they don't have a clue what it's like in other markets in this country. Go coach in New York. Go coach in Philadelphia. Go coach in Boston and then get back to me about how critical fans and the media can be. Are there critical, over-the-top, nasty Maryland fans? Yes. Okay. Is some of the stuff that gets said and written uh, appropriate? No, it's not. And it's unfortunate that that's a part of your job, but it is a part of your job. You don't think people said nasty things about Jay Gruden? You don't think Jay Gruden's kids have had to deal with some stuff, okay? You deal with it. I'm not saying it's right, but you find a way to deal with it. Mark Turgeon got a $5 million buyout for leaving as Maryland head coach, to say nothing of the millions of dollars that he made over his 10-plus seasons as Terps head coach. I don't begrudge him for making that money, but he was very well compensated for the job that he did. That he couldn't deal with the criticism doesn't speak well for him. Again, I want to hear his side of the story. I don't just want to tee off on him, but you know, we may not hear his side of the story. You know, it's interesting to me. Bronco Mendenhall announced that he was stepping down as Virginia football's head coach following the Cavaliers' bowl game this season. And then the next day, we got the shocking announcement from Maryland that Mark Turgeon was stepping down as Maryland head coach. Bronco Mendenhall, the night on which the news broke that he was resigning as Cavs head coach, did like a 40-minute Zoom press conference talking about his decision. And whether you like his decision or not, whether you agree with his decision or not, whether you understand his decision or not, 
at least you got a sense of where he's coming from, okay? You heard from the horse's mouth why what is happening is happening. We haven't had anything like that with Mark Turgeon. And if he doesn't want to talk about it publicly, that's fine. He doesn't have to. But I know for many people, uh, we might have a better understanding of where he's coming from than to just say, hey, uh, he quit on his team in the middle of the season. Again, this has not been a great look for Mark Turgeon. And again, this narrative that national college basketball personalities, for whatever reason, are perpetuating needs to stop because the narrative, A, is exaggerated and B, makes Mark Turgeon look bad. All right, let's talk some college football right now. Uh, the 2021 season was not a great season for Navy, but Navy did end up ending its 2021 season in a great way. Uh, Navy concluded a 4-8 season with a 17-13 win over Army at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey on Saturday as America's game, once again, was won by the midshipmen. Uh, Navy beat Army for a 19th time over the last 25 seasons. Yeah. Starting with the 1997 season, Navy is 19-6 and six against Army over the last quarter century. Uh, Navy now is 62-53-7 all-time against Army. Cannot say enough about the job that Navy head coach Ken Niamatololo did with his team for this game. The midshipmen beat an Army team that had been decidedly better than Navy in the 2021 season. Navy entered the game just 3-8 and eight on the season. Army entered the game 8-3 and three on the season. Uh, the efficiency numbers very much favored Army over Navy. Navy entered the game 95th in the FBS in offensive efficiency per ESPN. Army was 30th. Navy entered the game 88th in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. Army was 46th, and yet Navy won. Uh, this is what happens in rivalry games, right? Expect the unexpected. Uh, Navy spoiled Army winning the Commander-in-Chief's trophy outright. Uh, Navy defeating Army in this game denied Army the Commander-in-Chief's trophy outright and meant that Navy, Army, and Air Force each went one and one against the other two service academies in the 2021 season. First time that Navy, Army, and Air Force each went one and one against the other two service academies in a season since the 1993 season, and thus the Commander-in-Chief's trophy for the 2021 season is shared between Navy, Army, and Air Force. Uh, the number one reason for Navy winning this game was the mids defense. Navy's defense was outstanding. The mids defensive coordinator, Brian Newberry, is really good. Navy held Army to a season-low 232 total net yards of offense, including just 57 total net yards of offense in the second half. Navy held Army to just 4 of 12 on third downs. It's funny because the game did not start off well for the Navy defense. Navy, on the fourth offensive play of the game, gave up a lengthy touchdown run. Uh, gave up a second and eight, 56-yard triple option touchdown run to Army quarterback Christian Anderson, but Navy's defense was great the rest of the game. Navy's offense was not great, but Navy's offense was good enough. Uh, the mid-starting quarterback was Ty Lovatai. He had 20 carries for just 62 yards, but he did have two rushing touchdowns, and he went 4-6 passing for 82 yards. Uh, no touchdowns, no interceptions, but he took just one sack, and he led a Navy offense that went 2-2 two two on fourth downs. Uh, Navy slot back, Chance Warren, he had just one carry, but it was a big carry. It was a 4th-4, 26-yard under-center double-reverse end-around run on a play on which it appeared as if he was supposed to throw the football, uh, but the play happened on the second half's opening drive, which resulted in Ty Lovatai's third-quarter first-and-goal two-yard under center touchdown run. 
Uh, Navy was very creative in trying to muster just enough offense to win this game. Navy's offense was not good this season. The offense was good enough on Saturday in the win over Army, and the creativity had something to do with that. Here was Niamat Tololo during his post-game press conference on Saturday evening. We were going to come out swinging. You know, just we were just going to come out swinging. We are just like... Uh... We've been hearing a lot of stuff that the tables have turned and that they're on top. We've never felt that. Um, I just never felt that way. You know what I mean? I think they're a really good football team. Um, but our schedule's tough. I mean, we, we, we and, and it was by design and, um, yeah. So right there, you heard Niamatololo mention Navy's schedule. Yes, Navy did go just four and eight in the 2021 season, but 11 of the mids 12 games were against teams that made bowl games. Uh, so more from the Amatololo during his post-game press conference on Saturday evening. We played a tough schedule this year. You know, we played four top 25 teams. You know, if things could have worked out, if Notre Dame got in, we would have played two final four teams. You know, but nobody really talks about that. They just see a record. <laughs> But, you know, we played some tough people. So I knew we would be prepared for this game because we've been in the furnace, man. We've been playing some tough teams and just really, really proud of our seniors. And you should be. You know, Navy is just 7-15 and 15 over the last two seasons. This off Navy having 15 winning seasons in 17 years from 2003 through 2019. But an excellent season finale for Navy on Saturday with yet another win over Army and yet another win for Navy over Army with Ken Niamatololo as Navy head coach. Niamatololo now has 10 wins as Navy head coach over Army. He is the winningest head coach in the history of the Army-Navy rivalry. And speaking of college football head coaches, Virginia has its new football head coach. Uh, Bronco Mendenhall on December 2nd shockingly announced his resignation as Cavaliers head coach following the team's bowl game for this season. The Cavs will play SMU in the Fenway Bowl at Fenway Park in Boston on December 29th. Well, the Wahoos on Friday named Tony Elliott as the 41st head coach in Virginia football history. Uh, Look, we'll see how Tony Elliott does as a recruiter and as the leader of the program. But in terms of coaching credentials, I don't know how you don't like this hire if you're a Virginia fan. Uh, Virginia hired Tony Elliott as head coach off him having had quite the run as an offensive assistant coach at Clemson. Tony Elliott was an offensive assistant coach at Clemson for 11 seasons, 2011 to 2021. Elliott was Clemson's running backs coach from 2011 through 2014. Elliott was Clemson's co-offensive coordinator and running backs coach from 2015 to 2019, although he actually became co-offensive coordinator for Clemson's bowl game for the 2014 season. Elliott was Clemson's offensive coordinator and running backs coach for the 2020 season. Elliott was Clemson's assistant head coach, offensive coordinator, and tight ends coach for the 2021 season. So throughout this rise of Clemson football under head coach Dabo Sweeney over the last decade or so, Tony Elliott has been a key offensive assistant. And the accomplishments for Tony Elliott as an offensive assistant for Clemson include a number of impressive items. Uh, Tony Elliott was Clemson's co-offensive coordinator for its 2016 and 2018 national championship seasons. Elliott was Clemson's co-offensive coordinator and then offensive coordinator for Trevor Lawrence's run as a Clemson quarterback, 2018 through 2020. Elliott was Clemson's co-offensive coordinator for Deshaun Watson's last two seasons 
as a Clemson quarterback 2015 and 2016. Elliott coached running backs for Clemson during Travis Etienne's run as a Clemson running back 2017 through 2020. And Clemson, during Elliott's 10 seasons as running backs coach 2011 through 2020, had a 1,000-yard rusher seven times, including running back Travis Etienne in the 2018 and 2019 seasons and running back Wayne Goleman in the 2015 and 2016 seasons. College football right now is all about offense. Uh, That's how you win. That's how you recruit. That's how you sell tickets. Yes, defense matters. Uh, Heck, just ask Virginia that, right? Because UVA's defense this season has been horrendous. But offense is where it's at. And hopefully Tony Elliott can take Virginia to an even higher level offensively. I mean, the Hoos have been at a high level offensively this season with the outstanding season that quarterback Brendan Armstrong has had. Uh, There's also this with Tony Elliott. He has overcome a very difficult background. Uh, So Tony Elliott is 42. He's a young head coach, but he had quite a childhood. Uh, After Tony Elliott's parents separated when he was four, he briefly lived on the streets of Los Angeles with his mother and younger sister, Brandy. Uh, Tony Elliott was in the car with his mother when she was killed in an accident when he was nine. And then Tony and Brandy were separated after their father was jailed. So Tony Elliott in his life has overcome some stuff. I'm anxious to see what he has to say at his introductory press conference. Like I said, there's no telling how he'll be as a recruiter and how he'll be as the man in charge of a program. But to me, there's a lot to like about Tony Elliott, given what we know. Well, quite the weekend for the Capitals. Uh, Wasn't necessarily pretty, but the Caps emerged from the weekend in a pretty special place. Caps had two games over the weekend. Friday night, a 4-2 loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins at Capital Win Arena. Saturday night, a 3-2 shootout win at the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, Yes, the Caps unfortunately needed the shootout to beat one of the worst teams in the NHL, but the Caps got the two points. Caps improved to 17-5-6. And so the Caps now are at... 40 points on the season, 40 points in just 28 games, third fewest games for the Caps to reach 40 points in a regular season in Caps history. Uh, Not bad, not bad at all, especially considering the truckload of absences that the Caps continue to deal with. So first of all, Nicholas Backstrom has yet to play this season. This cannot be emphasized enough. The second best player in the history of the franchise has yet to play this season. Uh, Backstrom has been out since the start of Capitals training camp due to ongoing rehabilitation on his hip. Uh, Anthony Mantha is out indefinitely, uh, this due to shoulder surgery that he underwent on November 5th for an injury that was suffered in a 5-4 overtime loss at the Florida Panthers on November 4th. The Caps now have a COVID-19 situation. Uh, Garnett Hathaway now has not played in each of the Caps' last three games due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. Nick Dowd now has not played in each of the Caps' last four games due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. And defenseman Trevor Van Riemsdyk now has not played in each of the Caps' last four games due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. And then came what happened in that loss to the Penguins on Friday night. Both Tom Wilson and defenseman Martin Fehervari suffered upper body injuries. Uh, Tom Wilson, a first-line winger for the Caps, right? Top-line Tom. Uh, He suffered an upper body injury in the second period. He collided with Penguins defenseman Marcus Pedersen, fell to the ice, and slammed into Penguins goaltender Tristan Jari and into the back of the goal frame. Uh, Wilson grabbed the back of his head. 
Wentz's momentum stopped. Pedersen received a two-minute minor for tripping. Uh, Fehervori, who is part of the Caps' top defense pairing with John Carlson, suffered an upper body injury due to a nasty hit to the head by the Penguins' Brock McGinn uh, near the left point in the Caps' offensive zone in the second period. No penalty was called on the play. Fehervori, on the right side of his head, absorbed a hit from McGinn's left shoulder. Now, Wilson did not play in the shootout win at the Sabres on Saturday night. Fehervori, though, did, and Fehervori was really good in the game. So not only the good news of Fehervori not missing any time due to this upper body injury that he suffered on Friday night, but Fehervori was making an impact in the shootout win at the Sabres on Saturday night. Fehervori had a game-tying even-strength goal, 541 into the third period, and he had a game-high seven hits. So, so much for that upper body injury uh, that was suffered the previous night. Head coach Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on Martin Fehervori. Well, he's been excellent all year. I mean, it's nice for Marty. You know, he does a lot of he does a lot of work on the ice, and um, there's not a lot of offense that comes with it. Um, you know, some guys score all the time, and it's a little bit more common. But um, it's nice to see him get rewarded with a big goal like that because he plays so hard every night. Yeah, Martin Fehervori, another Capitals rookie, doing well this season, coming through in the midst of all of these absences. You know, the Caps in their shootout win at the Sabres won the third period 1-0. Uh, that third period included that Fehervari goal. But that third period, it was due in no small part to the Caps dominating the puck possession battle in the third period. The puck possession battle was about even over the first two periods. But the Caps in the third period, per natural stat trick, had 27 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Sabres 10 and 17 shots on goal to the Sabres 6. Another hero for the Caps on Saturday night was T.J. Oshie. Uh, Oshie had the secondary assist on Lars Eller's first period even strength goal. Oshie had four shots on goal, and Oshie had the game-winning goal in the shootout. Uh, T.J. Oshie is Mr. Shootout. T.J. Oshie's game-winning goal in the shootout on Saturday night was his 46th career shootout goal. That ranked as the fourth most shootout goals in NHL history. Uh, Also, very good weekends for Alex Ovechkin and Evgeny Kuznetsov. Ovechkin, in the loss to the Penguins on Friday night, had the primary assist on each of the Caps' two third-period goals. He had four shots on goal. He had a team-high tying seven shot attempts. He had four hits. And Ovechkin, per natural stat trick, ranked number four on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 53.85. The Caps with Ovi on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 21 shot attempts versus allowing 18 shot attempts. And then Ovechkin in the shootout win at the Sabres on Saturday night had the primary assist on Martin Fervari's game-tying even-trend goal in the third period. Ovechkin had a game-high tying six shots on goal. Ovechkin had a game-high 16 shot attempts. And Ovechkin again shined in the puck possession department. Ovi per natural stat trick ranked number two on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 65.71. Caps with Ovechkin on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 23 shot attempts versus allowing 12 shot attempts. But how about Ovechkin with these assists? Ovi this season now has 24 assists to go with 20 goals. Ovechkin, 24 assists in 28 games. That puts him on pace to having a 70-assist season. The most assists that Ovechkin has ever had in a regular season is 59. He's on pace to have 70 assists this season. Who needs Nicky Backstrom as a center, as a passer? 
uh, when you have Ovi, apparently. Uh, then there's Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, Kuznetsov, in the loss to the Penguins on Friday night, had a third period even-trend goal and a team-high five shots on goal. And per natural stat trick, ranked number three on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 54.05. Caps with Kuzi on the ice in five-on-five situations. And the game had 20 shot attempts versus allowing 17 shot attempts. And Kuznetsov, in the shootout win at the Sabres on Saturday night, had the secondary assist on Martin Ferrivari's game-tying even-strength goal in the third period. And Kuznetsov had five shots on goal. And Kuznetsov, per natural stat trick, ranked number one on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game. 68.75. Caps with Kuzi on the ice in five-on-five situations. And the game had 22 shot attempts versus allowing 10 shot attempts. So very good weekends for Alex Ovechkin and Evgeny Kuznetsov, especially in terms of of puck possession. Each guy is having a really good season. Uh, the Caps goaltending over the weekend featured both Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek. Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender in that loss to the Penguins. He stopped 29 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. Caps trailed 3-0 at the end of two periods as Samsonov over the first two periods stopped just 19 of the 22 shots on goal that he faced, but he in the third period stopped all 10 of the shots on goal that he faced. He per natural stat trick uh, stopped just four of the six high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped all 12 of the medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and stopped just 10 of the 11 low danger shots on goal that he faced. And then Vanacek was the cap starting goaltender in the shootout win at the Sabres. Uh, Vanacek in this game was the cap starting goaltender for just the third time in 12 games. We've talked about this. Ilya Samsonov clearly has surpassed Vitek Vanacek right now anyway, as the Caps' number one goaltender. Vanacek on Saturday night stopped 29 of the 31 shots on goal that he faced. So he was good in that game. Uh, Vanacek for natural stat trick stopped five of the seven high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped all eight of the medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and stopped all 13 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Next up for the Caps, they are at the Chicago Blackhawks, Wednesday night at 8. We move now to the Wizards. Uh, They, on Monday night, will begin a six-game road trip that includes four games out west. Uh, Wiz will be at the Denver Nuggets Monday night at 9. This six-game road trip for the Wizards will include games at the NBA-leading Phoenix Suns and at the Eastern Conference-leading Brooklyn Nets. The road trip also will include a game at the Utah Jazz, who, on Saturday night, spanked the Wizards in their latest loss, so the Wiz fell to 15-12 and 12 with a 123-98 loss to the Jazz at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. Now, the Wizards were without Kyle Kuzma. He did not play due to NBA health and safety protocols as the Wizards, Capitals, and Washington football team all have been dealing with COVID-19 situations lately. Uh, Wizards, of course, also remained without Rui Hachimura, who has yet to play this season due to personal reasons, and remained without Thomas Bryant, who has yet to play this season as he recovers from a partially torn left ACL that was suffered last January. But this was a bad loss for the Wizards. So they got bullied by the Jazz. Uh, now, Utah is good. Jazz entered the game 18-7 and on the season. And the Wizards actually led at the half 51-50, but the Wizards got smashed in the second half. Wizards lost the second half 73-47. Uh, the Wizards in the second half allowed the Jazz to go 7 of 18 on threes. The Wizards in the second half went just 3 of 14 on threes. The Wizards in the second half allowed the Jazz to go a scorching 22 of 28 on twos and got outscored in the paint 42 
26. The Wizards allowed Rudy Gobert, Hassan Whiteside, Jordan Clarkson, and Mike Conley in the second half to go a combined 14 of 15 on twos. Uh, the Wizards went just 8 of 25 on threes in the game, went just 8 of 14 on free throws in the game. Wiz did go 33 of 64 on twos, but here we are now. The Wizards are just 5 and 9 since their 10 and 3 start to the season. So this portion of the season in which the Wizards have stumbled now is longer than the portion of the season in which the Wizards did well. Five and nine stretch, 14 games, 10 and three start, 13 games. Head coach Wes Unsell Jr. during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on the identity of the Wizards right now. It's not where it should be, honestly. Um, you know, we have to get back to you know playing you know at that pace. The, the level of physicality, the, the the attention to detail, the focus, the purpose, uh, and all those things are you can't you know quantify them. But when you watch those games, you watch the film, and how we play is different. Uh, and I've, I've said it before. I think our offense has been good at times during the stretch where we haven't played great, and we've kind of let go of some of the defensive you know presence that we had early in the year. That was our anchor, and we have to find a way to get back to that. Yes, you do. And Bradley Beal has to find a way to get going here. Uh, Beal in the loss to the Jazz on Saturday night, another underwhelming game. He committed six turnovers. He had a game worst plus minus rating of minus 17 in 33 minutes, 34 seconds as a starter. He went one of three on threes, eight of 16 on twos, did finish with 21 points, five rebounds, and five assists. But I mentioned the six turnovers. Beal now is averaging a career worst 3.5. Turnovers per game. West Jr. during his post-game press conference on Saturday night on Beal's turnover problem. I mean, he's aware of it. I mean, we've talked about it. I think he's some of them are, you know, the, the pressure that teams put on him. They, they double him. They um, they hit. They blitz. But, you know, sometimes it's just, I think, sometimes careless. Um, sometimes he's playing in a crowd, trying to over-dribble, do too much. Um, and it's not because he's selfish. He's trying to make a play. He's trying to get himself going. He's trying to get us going. And, you know, at times it's it's tough because teams going to key in on him. They're going to shrink and, and show multiple bodies. So West Jr. right there said what I think a lot of us have said and thought. Uh, Bradley Beal can be careless with the basketball. He also has not been nearly efficient enough offensively. Uh, Beal on Saturday night in the first half, 0 of 1 on threes, just 2 of 8 on twos, scored just four points. Now, Beal, to his credit, isn't shying away from the season that he's having. Said Beal during his post-game press conference on Saturday night, quote, I've been S all year, end quote. Uh, here was the exchange in which Beal said that. The uh, trajectory of this team has kind of paralleled the play of uh, Spencer Dinwiddie and Montrose Harrell. They were great to start the season, been a little bit less consistent lately. Um, what do you think has been different about those two guys? Uh, in all fairness, Chase, I've been s all year, so I'm not going to sit here and, and talk about two other guys who've, who've really been helping our team out, you know. Um, so I, I'll put that on me before them. Um, you know, I have to be better. I have to lead better. I have to produce and lead this team like I want to. Um, so Trez and, and Spence will be fine. Yeah, so good for Bradley Beal for pointing the finger at himself. Uh, I definitely respect that, but Beal needs to be better. I mean, we're about a third of the way into the Wizards' regular season here, and Beal has yet to truly get going. Uh, now, you heard the asker of the question in that cut, our friend Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington, bring up Spencer Dinwiddie 
and Montrez Harrell. Uh, man, have those guys fallen off. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie on Saturday night in 24 minutes, 12 seconds as a starter. 0 of 3 on threes, 5 of 10 on twos, and just 2 of 4 on free throws. Uh, he finished with just 12 points and 4 assists versus one turnover. Dinwiddie over five games in this month of December has gone just four of 20 on threes and has totaled just 41 points. Dinwiddie is averaging just 8.2 points per game over five games this month. Montrez Harrell on Saturday night in 22 minutes, four seconds off the bench, went four of eight from the field, all twos, and he went a woeful one of five on free throws. He finished with nine points, five rebounds, and two assists, versus no turnovers. Montrez Harrell scored at least 10 points in each of his first 20 games of the season. He now has not scored in double figures in five of the Wizards' last seven games. Uh, another guy who struggled for the Wizards in their loss to the Jazz, and boy did this guy struggle, was Contavious Caldwell-Pope. He went scoreless in 24 minutes, 57 seconds as a starter. He went 0-1 on threes and 0-4 on twos. KCP at one point on an attempt at a driving baseline dunk got rejected by the side of the backboard. Yeah, he literally drove the basketball into the side of the backboard. Uh, not good. Not good at all. Uh, Denny Avdia started in place of Kyle Kuzma, but Avdia in 22 minutes, 45 seconds as a starter went 0-2 on threes, 2-4 on twos, scored just four points. He did have six rebounds and two blocks. A bright spot was Daniel Gafford. Uh, Gafford in just 23 minutes, five seconds as a starter, 14 points on six of six shooting and 11 rebounds, including four offensive boards. But the Wizards have lost their way. Too many of the recent losses have been ugly. Losses have been losses in which the team has gotten out physical and have been losses in which the team's defense has been lacking. The Wizards' great defense from earlier this season has fallen off and the Wizards' shooting hasn't been good enough to overcome these things. And it does not appear as if things will be getting any easier here. This six-game road trip that'll begin on Monday night is no cakewalk. Uh, this road trip includes games at some of the best teams in the NBA. The Wizards are being tested right now. Well, a rough loss for the Wizards at Capital One Arena on Saturday night, but that came hours after a very nice win for Georgetown at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon, as the legendary radio voice of the Hoyas, my pal, Rich Fotkin, would say, Hoyas win. Hoyas win! 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 Yes, Rich, the Hoyas won, and won against their biggest rival, and in come-from-behind fashion. Georgetown improved to 5-4 and four with a 79-75 win over Syracuse at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon. This was a great win for the Hoyas. The Hoyas were facing their arch rival, right, Syracuse, even though the Cuse, of course, is no longer in the Big East. The Hoyas, prior to the game, named their home floor at Capital One Arena as John Thompson Jr. Court in honor of, of course, legendary former Georgetown head coach John Thompson Jr., who passed away in August 2020 at the age of 78. Just as an aside, it would be nice if something like this was done while, you know, Coach Thompson was alive. I mean, we didn't need him dying to understand that he was worthy of having Georgetown's home floor at Capital One Arena be named after him, uh, but whatever. Uh, the Hoyas in this win over Syracuse overcame a 10-point halftime deficit, won the second half 45-31. This really was a tale of two halves 
for the Hoyas. The Hoyas, in a first half that they lost 44-34, allowed Syracuse to go 5-12 on threes and 12-20 on twos and went just 5-17 on twos. The Hoyas, in a second half that they won 45-31, held Syracuse to just 3-14 on threes and 10-22 on twos and went 9-12 on twos. Uh, the Hoyas' three-point shooting was good really throughout the game. Uh, Georgetown went 11-26 on threes. Hoyas did a good job of getting to the free throw line and did a good job of defending without fouling. Hoyas went 18-21 on free throws. Syracuse went 7-11 of on free throws. Uh, Hoyas did win despite having zero fast break points. The Syracuse is 13 and the Hoyas won despite getting outscored in the paint 42-26. But for me, the biggest takeaway from this Georgetown win over Syracuse was that this game was perhaps the true breakout game for Aminu Muhammad. Aminu Muhammad, uh, the Hoyas 6'5", five-star freshman, one of the most highly touted Georgetown recruits in years. He has had other good games for the Hoyas this season, but he was really good on Saturday afternoon in what was, of course, a big spot for Georgetown. Uh, Muhammad went one of one on threes, six of 13 on twos, and eight of nine on free throws. He finished with 23 points, 13 rebounds, including four offensive boards, five assists versus two turnovers, two steals, and two blocks in 37 minutes as a starter. Aminu Muhammad made so many big plays down the stretch of this game. Muhammad blocked a post-up jump hook attempt by Jimmy Beheim, son of Syracuse head coach Jim Beheim, in the paint with 4.41 left in the second half, and the Hoyas trailing by one point at 67-66. Muhammad connected on a go-ahead baseline jumper for a 70-69 Hoyas lead with 3.21 left in the second half. Muhammad off like a pirouette hit a go-ahead jumper in the paint with two Syracuse players on him for a 72-71 Hoyas lead with 2.02 left in the second half. And Muhammad made two free throws with nine seconds left in the second half for a 79-75 Hoyas lead. And 79-75 ended up being the final score. Just one big moment after another for Aminu Muhammad in that second half on Saturday afternoon. Uh, other heroes for Georgetown, Donald Carey, four of seven on threes. He finished with 18 points, four rebounds, and four assists versus one turnover in 35 minutes as a starter. Caden Rice, the graduate transfer from the Citadel, the three-point marksman. Well, he went five of 15 on threes. Uh, he finished with 15 points in 35 minutes as a starter. One of those made threes was a massive three. Rice hit a big go-ahead right wing three with two Syracuse players in front of him for a 75-73 Hoyas lead with 110 left in the second half. Remember, Caden Rice in the Hoyas' previous game, that 171 win over UMBC at Capital Win Arena last Wednesday night, set a single game Georgetown record with 10 made threes. He went 10-12 on threes in that game. Finished with 34 points. Uh, Georgetown's point guard on Saturday afternoon, Dante Harris, one of four on twos, just two of four on free throws, but he went one of two on threes, had seven points, seven rebounds, and six assists versus two turnovers in 33 minutes as a starter. And Colin Holloway was good for Georgetown off the bench. He, in 21 minutes off the bench, had 10 points on five of seven shooting. Really good win for head coach Patrick Ewing and his Hoyas. Patrick stuck it to Syracuse head coach Jim Beheim once again. Uh, next up for Georgetown, home to Howard, Wednesday evening at 6.30. Uh, also in college hoops over the weekend, Virginia Tech fell to 7-4, and four, a 62-57 loss at Dayton on Sunday afternoon. A rough game for the Hokies offensively. Hokies went just 6 of 22 on three, scored just 22 points in the first half. Tech will face St. Bonaventure 
in Charlotte this Friday afternoon at 4. No game for Virginia over the weekend. The Cavaliers' next game is a home game against Fairleigh Dickinson this Saturday afternoon at 2. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 207. We'll feature much more on the Washington football team of it falling to 6-7 and seven with the 27-20 loss to the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field. We'll have Rod Rivera's day after the game Zoom press conference on Monday to go through. Uh, also on Tuesday's show, I will post-game Monday night's game for the Wizards. So the Wizards on Monday night will be at the Denver Nuggets at 9. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. It was kind of cool. It really was, you know, even though there are uh, a few more uh, Dallas fans that I would have liked. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.